Hey everyone, Gil Gross here, and it is time for another mailbag where I answer your questions, your concerns, your comments, your quibbles about tennis and other things. About 24 hours ago, over 24 hours ago, I posted on the YouTube community tab. Comments were a little down, over 40 of you, about 50 of you commented. I also tweeted, and the Twitter people were out to play. I mean, I gotta say, a um, lot of you Twitter people coming out. So uh, I will, uh, the good news is I'll be able to get to a higher percentage of the comments compared to what I'm usually able to do. Uh, the way I want to do this is Swagit Carr gave me some uh, comments that I didn't get to last time. So let's start with those. It's been about a month since I've done a mailbag. It's been about a month since we've seen tennis. So this is a good time to uh, get creative. Let's have some fun. First one. You have talked about the next gens need to improve, but what about the big three? What do you think they should work on for 2021, given that the next gen is fighting for con is fighting in contention for almost every title now? Good opportunity to plug the last episode of Monday Match Analysis with Alex Gruskin of Cracked Rackets. We went through the top 10 plus a couple of others and basically talked about what we want to see from them in 2021, assuming we want all of them to succeed and do the best they can. And um, it was kind of our off-season wish list. So we hit on the big three. Um, I think that for, for Novak, consistency of second serve, finding that second serve that we saw in Australia where he was... He was hitting it about 110 miles per hour with consistency, and that is such an added layer of aggression in his game. You might not see it. It might not jump off the screen, but if if Novak can hit second serves with that kind of aggression, it'll really make up for what he'll never have, which is a booming first serve. But if he can balance those out, and if he can come in with that kind of second serve, that can be major. I felt that he was, there were times where he was kind of rolling it in. Uh, there were times where he was double faulting too much, but early in the season, when we saw the best version of Djokovic, you saw a really, really great second serve. That and the cardio, just be in peak physical condition when it matters. Uh, that's something that I've said over and over again. I, I have my, I, my eyes on that and I'm intrigued to see what comes of that. For Nadal, it's really, really hard because he's rounded out his game so nicely. But uh, I think be bold in the big moments, win more tie breaks, um, off clay especially. And I think that just comes from kind of taking a little bit more risk in the biggest moments. It's something that I, I think that I came into 2020 talking about for Nadal. But hopefully he can continue to make progress on that in 2021. For Roger Federer, it's uh, it's mostly about health and movement, and that's the main thing that you need to circle. But I do think that my co-host on three, a tennis show, Amy Lundy, made a very good point. Everything about Federer's game is kind of modeled around keeping points short and doing the maximum amount of damage in the shortest period of time possible, except for the return. So if there is something technically or uh, tactically, that Federer might be able to work on and enhance his play style and what he's trying to do on the court, it's a good chance it comes from the return. And maybe Roger can, can learn to take bigger cuts and find different ways to be a little bit more aggressive on the return. 
Uh, so so he doesn't have to do as much running, and, and he won't have to play as many long rallies. Number two. Again, these are comments that I missed in last week's mailbag. I always like to go back and comment um, if, I, if I like your comment and I don't get to it. I say, hey, try again. Uh, number two, it's been good to see team do well against the top guys and in big tournaments, but it's been frustrating to see him lose to lower-ranked guys in early rounds more often against a player of a lower caliber. What do you think or why do you think this is? And do you think it has will always be a problem in his career? I'm I'm glad to see this comment in here because you know I, I think I'm a I've been a little bit off in my analysis of Dominic Team and what I've been hoping his next step in his development was going to be because I've always had this fantasy about Dominic Team that he was gonna play a little bit more like Murray, Djokovic, and Nadal, and have a little bit more discipline from the baseline and limit his mistakes. And the reason why I was hopeful that Dominic Team might be able to do that at some point in the future is because I think that he's an incredibly hardworking athlete. I think he has great fitness. I think he has the ability physically to hang in rallies, and I think he has the technique and the, the racket talent to, to limit his mistakes better. And I kind of thought that that was the next step. But the more I watch team in 2020, and I'm just seeing him get better and better and better, the more I'm starting to realize that that may just never be in the cards for Dominic team. So what does that mean? It means we accept, and he accepts, that sometimes it's going to be a little bit ugly. In both the micro... There might be games where he's making three or four errors and getting broke and getting his serve broken. In the macro, there might be matches where he's making 35, 40 unforced errors and he's losing against someone he shouldn't. That's what comes with what he's trying to do on the court, which is a really ruthless look. It's different than Federer because the offense is deployed differently. It's, it's deployed more so with brute force, with power, with heaviness, with weight of shot. And that's not Roger. But in terms of tactically, what he's trying to do, the level of aggressiveness, the, the amount of risk he's taking, it's very similar to Roger, right? So the intention is the same. The way he gets to the end point is different. But the result is that sometimes Dominic Team is giving a lot of gifts to the player on the other side of the net. It's going to lead to more upsets. It's going to lead to more volatile tennis. It, that's what's going to happen. I always felt that Federer was more likely than even an Andy Murray to, and I understand that there was a point in his career where uh, this wasn't the case, um, really up until, what, well, he had the crazy the, the crazy run, the record-setting run of major semifinals, which uh, went through 2000. <laughs> Um, what was it? Went through 2010, I want to say. Um, was it, did it end in the loss to Stakhovsky in Wimbledon in 2012? Maybe. Anyway, my point is, uh, Dominic Team and Roger Federer are, and the, the styles that they employ will always be more prone to asking a little bit less of their opponent on an off day. So they might lose 
and they might not ask as much as you would like them to ask of their opponents. It's just not the case for an Adal or a Djokovic or a Murray. They are always, even on their worst day, they're going to put enough balls in the court where they're going to ask a little bit more of their opponents, if that makes sense. So my answer to your question, are we going to see Dominic Team lose to players who he shouldn't be losing to maybe more than he should? I think yes. I think that's probably something we can get used to. Sorry to go long on that one. How many slams do you think the contenders outside the big three will win next year? And which ones are they most likely to win? The second part of the question, I would say Australian Open and U.S. Open. I think on hard courts, they are, uh, they are the most threatening. Um, but on the natural surfaces, you have Nadal on clay, which obviously is going to kind of tilt the probability, tilt the percentages. And on grass, you just haven't seen anything from really anyone in the, the, the younger generation. And you can throw Dominic Team in there as well. U.S. Open, at the end of the year, the big three are more worn down. So I think that's always a, a good candidate. But I think hard courts. I would set the over-under at one and a half. And I know that there are more people who, who have asked that uh, in this comment section. So one and a half would be my over-under for slams one outside the big three. I would favor, I would favor two over one. I think it's more likely that there are two slams outside the big three than one. I would even venture to say maybe I'd set the over-under at two, but I think one and a half. One and a half tilted towards two. Andre Rublev had an amazing season this year. Which five ATP players outside the current top 10 do you expect to have a great year next season? All right, let's do it. Let me pull up the rankings because I'm not going to do that off the top of my head. And I will give you some players outside the top 10 that I think will be on the up. Uh, I'm not going to, I'm going to skip, I'm not going to give you the obvious ones. I'm not going to say, you know, uh, Yannick Sinner, okay? I'm going to try to be a little bit more outside the box. But uh, uh, I will throw Alex Dimonor in there. 23 in the world, still flying a little under the radar. I think if he develops more physically, I think he can have a big year. Borna Chorich, forgotten man. He'll be rising the ranks, in my opinion. Kasper Ruud, also kind of in that category. You know he's coming up. He's at the ripe age of 22. Just not a lot of people are talking about him. He should be on the up and up. Uh, Hugo Umber, very underrated. People aren't talking about him enough, I don't think. Dan Evans continues to get better and better. Now, he is not so young. He is 30 years old. But I see him continuing to really mold into the kind of player that, that he has always had the potential to become. I will give you Mimir Kecmanovic, another one of the young players that just isn't getting as much attention. Alejandro Davidovich Fakina, I think just an underrated, another, uh, another young gun. Uh... Fushevix is kind of always in there as, as someone who who I have my eye on. I think he's always a tough out. I'm always a fan of his. Vashik Pospisil can continue to get better and better with the new mindset that he's found. I don't know when I've hit 10, but I'm just going to keep going. Um, I hope Luca Pui can get healthier. I don't know if I don't know if he's in that group 
for me, but I, I do hope that he can get a little bit healthier. And the last one I will throw in there is Kevin Anderson. If he can get healthier, he is currently the world number 81. I would expect him to kind of turn things around. And I know he's old, but we've seen players a la John Isner at his age or, or an Evo Karlovich. We've seen players with the kind of weapons that Kevin Anderson has, especially with the serve. Uh, we've seen players have success at that age. Does OJ Aliasim have what it takes in your opinion? Also, do you think Novak loves drama and conflict? FAA, I think there are other comments that, that ask questions about him. I'm going to save that one. I don't think Novak loves drama and conflict. Conflict. I don't think he's very good at avoiding it, but I don't think he likes it. I genuinely don't. All right, that is it for the comments we missed last week. Let us go to Twitter. Open this up thing, or open this up here. You can follow me on Twitter, at Gil Gross. Gil with two L's, of course, an underscore between first name and last. Okay. Who was best in their worst year? Rafa 2015, Novak 2017, Roger 2013. All right, I saw this, I saw this question, and I did a little bit of digging. I wanted to refresh myself on these seasons. I got, I got some numbers here. Roger Feder went uh, 45 and 17 in 2013. It's a 73% win percentage. He lost to Sergei Stakovsky at Wimbledon. He lost to Tommy Robredo at the U.S. Open. I remember I was watching Ferrer on Grandstand. And I knew that Feder got moved to Armstrong because I believe it was a rainy day. I think Ferrer was playing James Blake. And I just kept hearing these massive roars from Armstrong. And I knew that this was not, not a sleepy... Uh, I was checking the scores. And it, I just remember very vividly just hearing the the crowd trying to desperately trying to get Federer going in that match against Robredo. And it was really bad. I believe I believe Roger had pretty bad back problems throughout this 2013 season, and he was spraying the ball all over the place. Stakovsky was a, a pretty bad loss at Wimbledon. And then to put the cherry on top, Nadal beat him at the ATP finals that year, which is like talk about losing on your home court. Federer uh was, de was defeated by Rafa there. And then I think Djokovic beat Nadal in the finals there. Um, okay, so that's Federer in 2013. Djokovic, 2017. He went 32-8. and eight. It's a win percentage of 80. Lost to Dennis Istomin at the Australian Open. That was kind of the first yikes loss coming off the dominant 2015 and 2016 seasons that Novak had. Then he lost to Nick Kyrgios twice in a row, two, two straight tournaments in Acapulco and Indian Wells. Ultimately retired against Tomas Burdick at Wimbledon and then shut it down for the rest of the season. So he didn't really play, play a full season. Novak 2017, it's a little bit misleading because his struggles kind of bled into 2018. And the worst I ever saw Novak play was against Taro Daniel at Indian Wells and then Benoit Paire in Miami. That's the worst version of Djokovic I have seen. So 2017 doesn't fully encompass 
Novak's worst tennis. Moving on to Nadal. Went 61 and 20 in 2015. That's a win percentage of 75%. But he, he did play a lot of matches. He way more wins here than Federer and Djokovic had in their respective down seasons. He uh, This was the season he lost in straight sets to Novak Djokovic at Roland Garros. He lost to Dustin Brown at Wimbledon. I, I, he had no knees come grass court season whatsoever. Uh, at the U.S. Open, he lost to Fanini in five sets. That was epic. Two in the morning and uh, couldn't get through Fabio Fanini with his smoking hot backhands down the line. Um, Man, you know, these three... <laughs> I remember these seasons so well because they, they were so distinctively bad. Um, but to answer the question, the best worst year, I would have to go with Rafa Nadal. When I think about this season, and by the way, 2016 wasn't great for Nadal either. But when I think of of Nadal, you know, I think of a guy who has no confidence on his forehand. It's It's short. It's just not very lethal at all. And, man, he's just a shell of himself. He's not bringing the offense to the court. Not at all. He's not serving great. He's, But he's still playing hard. He's still a tough out. It, you still need to do something to him to, to beat him. And I see Federer, and it's like he, he's spraying the ball all, all over the place. I see Djokovic... When he was down, and I see a player who might give up because mentally he just was not motivated. He was not a player who was really ready to dig in. And I think if you if you sapped the belief out of Djokovic, you, you might just get a, a shell of a player. So I still think Nadal was best. And then ultimately, you know, Rafa won 61 matches in 2015. Djokovic won 32, and then he, he shot it down for injury. Uh, and then Federer won 45. So I got to go with Nadal. I think he had the best worst year. That's my answer. Kind of fun to rehash that though. Who do you think is in the running for comeback player of the year? Someone who has struggled this past year, but will return to form in 2021. Uh, that, that one from Brendan Daniels, the last one from Abby. Uh, for this one, I would say Kevin Anderson. I know I, I mentioned him as a player who might move up the the ranks but Kevin Anderson had knee injuries elbow injuries the last two years it's been really difficult for him it, it, I've felt for him really uh he fell outside the top 100 he went 10 and 10 in 2020 he's 34 years old but I just saw little mini flashes from the South African and I think if he settles down and he gets healthy I think we might see maybe another good year from him in, in 2021. Uh, so I think this has all the ingredients of a comeback player of the year. Um, remember Vienna? He he beat Daniil Medvedev. He made the semifinals of Vienna. But it was really just a, an injury replete year for Kevin Anderson. So I think that... I think the, the point of comeback player of the year is you don't see it coming. So who knows? I mean, I would have never said Vashik Pospisil. Never in a million years. But... Uh, if there's someone who I think has all the ingredients to maybe do it, I think it's K.A. What was the best uh, singular stretch of play 
you saw on the ATP and WTA this year, and you remember your thoughts if you were able to watch it live. Hmm. Well, for the ATP, I think it was I think it was what I what I ultimately gave the match of the year is Djokovic Medvedev. It's in the third set and it's 5-4, Novak trying to serve it out. I just thought you know every single point was was quality tennis. I thought it was incredible. If you add the drama and the quality together, I think that's my pick. On the WTA side, uh, very memorable is the semifinal between Naomi Osaka and Jennifer Brady. Just, I mean, the way Brady hits her forehand, and I, I guess just the, the the offensive tennis and the the ball striking, the power off the ground from both of them is uh, was incredible. Really, something else to watch. So that that would be my pick on the WTA side. Expectations for Carlos Alcaraz next season. Hmm, well, uh, I I can't... I would expect it to look a lot like Yannick Sinner. It's really hard to... Uh, the, the jump from the challenger level to the tour level is really substantial. So you're not going to see Alcaraz just uh, kind of rip through that transition, I don't think. In order to see something happen like like Nadal in 2004 or like Coco Goff, who even after the magical Wimbledon run beating Venus Williams and going going far at the All England Club, has has really sustained quite a high level and you know has put together some tour level wins at the age of 16, which is just not easy to do. In order to see something like that. You have to have a case where someone is a physical anomaly, where they are already fully developed at at an age like sixteen or seventeen. I don't think Alcaraz is quite there, and he has so so. I wouldn't expect to see him deliver results that are really off the charts like Nadal did as a teenager. So I would expect a year a lot like Yannick Sinner, above 500, into the top, I would say at lowest, into the top 50 if there's a full season. I would say at at the, the peak, maybe into the top 20. I think that's kind of the range for Alcaraz. What happens to Indian Wells in 2021? They're looking at alternative dates, but where? No clue. No clue. That one from Igor. Not sure. Um, Hey, Gil, I remember you saying a while back that you felt like Federer had one more slam left in him. Even given everything that's happened since I tend to feel the same. Assuming physical recovery goes well, do you still have that feeling that he can pull off one more? Again, if I were to put odds on it, would I bet my mortgage that that Federer's going to win another slam? Absolutely not. And I would, in my heart of hearts, if I had to set a percentage, I'd probably have it below 50%. And in fact, I, I definitely would have it below 50%. But... Uh, all I think, I think it's only fair. You give him the benefit of the doubt. 
I am not going to assume regression. I'm just not because I'm just, why? I'm done doing that. I'm not going to assume a regression based on, based on what data? Based on his age, based on the fact that he had a surgery. Two, if you did that in 2016, at the end of 2016, you were wrong. You were wrong because in order for me to predict Roger Federer regression, he's going to have to show it to me on the court. Then I will make that determination. But for now, I'm going to take the Roger Federer that we last saw, and I'm going to assume that he's going to bring that level to 2021. Here's the only thing that I can say with confidence. This is what I'm adamant about. That level can win a slam. It can happen. He doesn't need to get better. He doesn't need to change something. He doesn't need to pull a rabbit out of uh, out of his hat. That level is good enough to win a slam. It's good enough to make another major semifinal with, with on, on one leg and 75% health. And the year prior, it it brought him within two match points at Wimbledon. So from Ali, do you think some are right to be concerned about Novak? His post hiatus level hasn't been great despite winning Cincy and Rome. And I've seen many predict him to go through 2021 without him winning a slam. Did the break hurt him? Again, I see I see it the same way. I think despite the results, and Novak continues to win an unbelievable amount of matches with his mental strength alone. But outside of that, uh, it was not the same Novak Djokovic. It was, it was not his best. He really had to scrap and claw for a lot of his biggest victories. Um... But I think if he were to write a memoir on his career when it's all said and done, I could I could already see it right now. Look, there was a pause in the middle of the year. It takes a lot of pain and a lot of sacrifice, a lot of suffering, a lot of extra work off the court to for a player to get to the peak of their abilities. It is not easy. It does not happen with the snap of a finger. You must be motivated. And it is only human that all of the extra stress and uncertainty that Novak and everyone else on tour had to deal with, with not knowing when they're going to play next, not knowing if the next tournament is going to happen or be canceled, playing without a crowd, Playing a whacked out schedule, all of these variables, it's it's understandable if Novak just couldn't get himself to where he needed to be with his off-the-court training, especially leading up to the U.S. Open during that pause. It would just be understandable. I mean, look at the Adria Tour. He, he was way worse than Dominic Team. He was in way worse physical condition, um, just everything. He was a way worse player. He just wasn't He wasn't fully in form, but it's understandable. So again, I'm kind of going to hold out and let's see what he's got in 2021 when there's no excuse there, right? 
the Olympics were canceled. Wimbledon was canceled. This is not an easy thing to just brush aside mentally. So I think you just need to be understanding of Novak in 2020 and what some of those reasons might have been for him not looking the same. There are reasons. Now, if he comes out in 2021 and I'm seeing some of the same shortcomings with a with a dramatically reduced shot tolerance and shot selection that breaks down late in the rallies and inconsistent second serving and less explosive uh, explosivity on the return game. If I see all those things, that's another story. But we got to wait and see. Current ATP players from outside the top 10, who would be your pick to have a career-best 2021 season except Sinner? Yeah. Well, okay. I guess the last comment asked me to pick 10. This is asking me to pick one. So who do I feel the most strongly about? It's probably between Hugo Umber and Alejandro Davidovich Fakina. Those are kind of my two players. And I would go with Davidovich Fakina because I see him maybe as someone who's a little bit more versatile when it comes to surfaces. I think he's got a lot of good tools on both clay and on the quicker surfaces. I want that serve technique to to tighten up a little bit. I don't like it. Uh, his his arm's too straight. He doesn't get that nice... Everyone's Everyone kind of gets that... Uh, I don't know. You, you want to get kind of an L shape in the elbow on the trophy position. And I think, I feel like Davidovich Fikina is he's all the way out here like Novak used to be. I, I hope he starts serving better. Outside of that, great hands, great power, good movement, creative player, uh, motivated player. I really like Alejandro Davidovich Fikina. So he's my guy. Will Andre Rublev build on 2020 and have even more success at the top, or will there be a letdown? Um, okay, there's a lot of questions from Next Gen Tennis Stan, so let me answer these quickly. Rublev, build on 2020 or letdown? Somewhere in between, it depends. It's going to be harder for him to make the jump from uh, where he is right now, uh, a, a Tier 2 player, to that Tier 1 than it was for him to kind of go th from a outside the top 20 guy to inside a top eight guy. Um, I see this this season very much like uh, potential to be like Daniil Medvedev's. There's going to be some times where people are going to panic and be like, why isn't Rublev still winning everything? What's going on? And it's like, okay, calm down. He's not just going to win everything all the time, okay? Um, but then also, you don't want to really ring the alarm bells if that happens. I expect Rublev to... Kind of steady, settle. His progress is going to become slower, but I believe that there is so much in his game left to improve. So much. From the heaviness of his second serve and uh, his ability to, to hit his spots on his second serve to his uh, transition game, approach shot, volley, his hands, perhaps his defense, but I don't think that will get any better if I were to guess. Will Diego Schwartzman remain in the top 10? I hope so. But likely not. 
Likely not. I don't know. It's going to be difficult for him. I think he can, though. He's in his prime. Yeah. Okay. If I were to guess, yes. I would say Schwartzman can stay in there. But uh, my official top 10 prediction, I got to see. I got to see. Because my official top 10 prediction will come in a couple of weeks. I'll do my preseason top 10. That'll be a blast. How do you envision the seasons of Brandon Nakashima and Lorenzo Musetti going? Musetti has more juice behind him in, in my eyes than Nakashima. But I see Massetti I see Massetti having some success at the tour level. I see Nakashima um honestly having some growing pains because I think his his forehand is a little bit behind and I think he needs to make progress there. Can team break through at Roland Garros twenty twenty one? I'd argue that he already has broken through. Um if the question is can he win the title I still think he's the number two. You know, I still, I still, uh, if he plays Novak Djokovic right now, I'm picking Dominic Team. Um, can he beat Nadal in 2021? Probably. It would probably require Nadal to to step down a level or Dominic Team to introduce something that we haven't seen from him yet. It would probably take one of those things. Hi, Gil. I've been following the channel for almost three years, and to my memory, there are only two young players that you said you were, quote, all in on almost as soon as they arrived, Felix Ojealiasim and Yannick Sinner. I have three questions to that end. How would you compare their trajectories now, and who has the better prospects for a successful multi-slam career? Well, I'm glad you asked this. Let me read your other questions. Also, who among the two do you think has the higher ceiling game-wise? Who would you back if they were to face each other, both at peak level and at current level? Okay. FAA. FAA, FAA, FAA. I, I, I was not encouraged by his growth in 2020. I used to be very, very certain and confident that he was going to be a top three player. I'm no longer extremely certain about that. I still think that he can be, and I still think he has loads of potential, and I still think he's going to be a great player. I still think he's almost guaranteed to be a top 10 player. I'm just, I, I feel like his progress has slowed to, to, a, to a level that I've been disappointed with. Yannick Sinner, I can't, I can't say so much. I think he has continued to get better and better physically, developing the forehand, just really tightening it up, um, and it's becoming a much more consistent weapon, a more compact weapon, and more repeatable, I would say, all in all. And he's starting to move better and better, putting in the work. It's going to bulk up, I believe. So... Right now, I'm all around more confident in Yannick Sinner than I am FAA. I also think he's much more balanced. Sinner's more balanced. And FAA, I, and this is something that I haven't, I'm not patting myself on the back here. I'm just saying I haven't heard anyone else say this, but I don't know why there hasn't been more talk about his backhand because it's not at a top 10 level. It needs to be better. It's, it needs to be 
it needs to be more effective. And, and that's, that's a big deal because I'm just, I'm just talking about blanket statement, all aspects, offensively, defensively, in, in every respect, I don't think the FAA backhand is really in a great place right now. And I'll, if I were to go into detail, I'd say one thing is that he doesn't hit it down the line. He, you know, he's 90, 90% of the time that ball is going cross court and it's just, you can't be that predictable against the best players. They are going to kill you for that. And I think while it's a heavy shot, while he hits it hard and he gets a lot of spin, A, it's not really consistent enough, but B, I don't see him getting a lot of depth on it. I don't see him putting it really in the best parts of the court all the time. I see him leaving that shot in the middle of the court. So that's the backhand. And then on the forehand, it's such an unbelievable weapon, which with, with so much to unlock, so much potential to unlock in that forehand, but he misses it too much. And it's because he's going for the wrong shots. It's not, it's not technical at all. It's literally just that he is going for the lines and then sometimes he's missing because he's going for too much. And part of that is maybe because he's not confident in really finishing his volleys yet. So maybe he feels like he has to finish instead of, well, I can hit it a little bit safer inside the line and just follow it in. Maybe that's the reason. But also I'm, I feel that he's lacking court feel. And sometimes he's the angle is wide open and he's still hitting deep. Or the drop shot is wide open and he's still hitting deep. The the he's just uh, not constructing points like I'd like him to yet, and he's still double faulting too much. So there are a lot of things with FAA that when he was young, I was like, okay, well, well, they'll get better. This is no problem. I still see a player who's an unbelievable athlete who has this great combination of athleticism and power that reminds me of a Rafael Nadal or a Novak Djokovic, um, who has a forehand that has the potential to develop like a Roger Federer, who has the serve, which is 130, you know, who, uh, a first serve that can be a weapon. All of these things combined, holy moly, we have the potential for an all-time player here. He's just not making any progress on the weaknesses, in my eyes, in 2020 at least. So again, I'm trying not to judge players too hard on, on last year. So let's see what he what he has for me next season. That's what I'll say about FAA. Best volley on tour. Do you agree with Roger, who said that Nadal has the best volley? Maybe he was a little bit too humble. My favorites in this era are Federer, Gilles Muller, Lopez, and Nadal in this order. Your take. Mueller. Hmm. Interesting choice. My my volley of choice has always been Feli Lopez. I've always loved his volleys. Uh, they've always kind of been my favorite. He... You know, I really like, see, he sticks the volleys better than these guys for the most part. Nadal's got a great drop volley. The reason I'd probably put Federer over Nadal is, one, his footwork and his net coverage and his comfort in hitting difficult volleys, I think, is is higher for Federer. I would say, um, but I would, I would probably give the edge to Lopez. Probably give the edge to Lopez. In, in volleying, I think he's got, in my opinion, the best volleys on tour. I've kind, of, I think I've always felt that way. Really, what are your views on the ATP Cup? Do you think the qualification based on highest ranked player 
and points distribution are fair. Would it have been better not to hold it at all in 2020? This one from Lynn. Look, I don't see how you could argue that the ATP Cup is fair. Again, that that label, fair, that word, no. You, you can't call the ATP Cup fair. From how a country is qualified, it's all about the top-ranked player, right? So you might have a, a situation like, I don't know, uh, France, right? It, it, is France in this year? Let's see. So you have... Serbia, Spain, Austria, Russia, Switzerland, Greece, Germany, Russia, Argentina, Italy. Oh, Guillaume Monfils. There's France. Canada for Denis Shapovalov, uh, Spain. Um, okay, like, uh, so I, I guess the best example is is Greece, right, with, with Tsitsipas. Uh, so you can have a country like Greece get in. You can have a country like, who's not in here that should? Italy gets in with, with Berrettini. Um, it's funny, actually. It, it's hard to find a country that's really robbed here. Um, interesting. Argentina. Who's robbed? Did... We saw also D Dimitrov get uh, Belarus in last year. Excuse me, Bul Bulgaria. Sorry about that. Um, there's no way that you can attach fair to ATP Cup, right? And another reason is, is which players get to play and which players don't. So that's the second part. One, it's qualifications, and you it, it's not necessarily the best countries, Right, it it could be just you have one strong player at the top, like 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 Greece or like Bulgaria, right? But what about the Russia scenario where you had Andre Rublev in a situation with Hachinov and Medvedev above him, and here we are, Andre Rublev, number twenty three in the world to start twenty twenty, as we ultimately saw, was one of the best players in the world at the time. And he couldn't play ATP Cup. Not only does it rob him of the rankings points and the prize money, but it robs him, more importantly, of the experience. Right? He might have gotten that that repetition in a match against Novak Djokovic. Maybe he loses it, but you learn. You learn a lot if you're a young player and you get to play in these matches. And a player like Andre Rublev, 23 in the world, didn't qualify to play ATP Cup. And, I mean, he could have played doubles if he wanted to, but that's not in his best interest. So fair, no, not fair. No way the ATP Cup is fair. The question is, is this a scenario where you sacrifice fairness for entertainment? We do this in tennis. We do this probably in all sports. I could think of other examples, but in tennis, the most, the, the example that comes to mind immediately is the wild card. Are wild cards fair or are they the best thing possible for our entertainment. Should Andy Murray get a wild card into the Australian Open? For the best interest of the tournament, of the fans, 
Damn right he should. Of course Andy Murray should get a wild card. We want him in that tournament. We want him in the Australian Open. Fair? Is that the most fair? Not really. No. His, you know, if, if the ranking doesn't suggest that the rules are in place, this is how long your ranking gets protected. If you are injured past that, your ranking is no longer protected. And Andy Murray is two, 223 in the world right now. Right? So is it fair? No. Do we want it for our entertainment? Yes. So the ATP Cup is, it's just another balance. It's just like that. What do we want? Do we want fair? Do we want entertaining? Because it certainly was last year. I would say this. Should not count for rankings points. I think that crosses the line. I, I don't know how you can do that. I don't, you know, you were giving players in the 700s, the 600s, the 500s in the case of, um, I remember last year, you know, with, with Greece and Bulgaria uh, particularly, you are giving these players an opportunity that they did not earn. You know, it's just that they have, they have a Tsitsipas and Dimitrov earned them for their respective countries, but these players, they didn't earn that opportunity. And then you, you have players who are robbed of an opportunity and it's completely not merit-based. It's because they come from, because they hail from a country that just happens to be incredibly overpowered, incredibly strong within the ATP. You can't make any argument that it's fair because it's not. It's objectively not, It's but it's entertaining. So how can we keep the entertaining and how could we add fairness? Take away the rankings points. I think players will still play. I think. I don't think everyone's going to flock to Doha just because ATP Cup takes away the rankings points. Maybe they would. And then we could have a separate conversation. I guess, uh, I suppose it, it it can be difficult. It's not a, a simple and easy solution. Okay, I'm, I think I'm done with Twitter in a second. Does Djokovic need to make a drastic tactical change if he faces Nadal at the Australian Open, or was the French Open a unique situation? No, I, I don't think Djokovic needs to make a, a drastic change. Um, I'm interested to see if Nadal tries to hug the baseline like he did at the French. And I, I would like to see how often Djokovic goes to the drop shot is something I'll be interested to see in 21, but off the top of my head, no. All right. Let us go to the YouTube comment section. What part of Rafa's game... Uh, does he need to focus on to improve his chances at the Australian Open? feel like I already answered that. One thing I will add to Nadal, which I didn't say, is I, I think he's probably tired of tinkering with his service technique. He, he's, he's really, he's playing with it and it seems to be changing constantly. He probably is frustrated with the level of consistency that he's been able to find, lack thereof, in his serve. And I think he'd rather serve a little bit higher percentage for a serve, still go big and just find that perfect balance and be in that, those between 115 and 120 miles per hour at a high percentage and find a technique that really feels good for him and that he can stick with for not a year, but three years, four years, right? Until he retires. And I think he hasn't found that yet. Um... 
Of the three, who do you think has the best chance to make another semifinal or final run in a major? Vavrinka, Murray, or Delpa? I would say Andy Murray. Juan Martin Del Potro, I'm just hoping he can play some tennis. I'm not thinking about any run in a in a major. I'm just hoping that he can get back on the court. Stan Vavrinka, I, we've seen what he is here. I, I don't think that he can put in the road work anymore. I don't think he can do the running, the moving, that he needs to do in order to reach that level unless he can come up with, with leaps of improvement on his serve that I don't think he's capable of. So I'm really not expecting this out of Vavrinka. I know that a lot of people keep waiting for that to happen. I just wouldn't hold your breath here. Stan's still a tough player. Stan's a good player. But I'm not looking for him to make another run. Andy Murray? I don't think we saw a healthy version of Andy in 2020. And I am still holding out hope that we might be able to see it at some point. And when that comes... I want him to be a little bit more aggressive than I've seen. But he's going to be another, you know, he's going to be really, really good again. So by far out of that group, Andy Murray is who I think has the best chance at making another run in a major. What are the main differences between Zverev and Medvedev? Their games seem like a carbon copy of each other and their achievements are also similar. Hmm. First of all, yes, I agree. I, I also think that the, the Zverev-Medvedev comparison is is not made often enough. People don't seem to, to draw attention to this. So kudos, good catch, I agree. Um, there is a very different mental makeup. I think that's the biggest difference. Medvedev is a disruptor to the highest level. You know, he, he wants to he wants to throw a wrench in whatever you're trying to do. He wants to make you feel very uncomfortable. He wants to change patterns. He wants to be unpredictable. I don't think Zverev is wired like that. I think Zverev is, is wired like a machine. Uh, he is not a disruptor. He is a ball machine. He's a, a repetition guy, a kind of a, a a mathematical guy and I not I don't mean that in a literal sense I mean that more in a, a figurative sense I think that Zverev is much more um rhythm oriented than Daniil Medvedev who I don't think is rhythm oriented at all I think he's trying to disrupt your rhythm Zverev is just trying to um he is more he's kind of confident that that if if you get if you engage in that in that rhythmic rally that he will come out on top how many slams do you think okay i already answered that one uh fetters withdrawal from the australian open yeah i'm surprised no one has specifically asked about that man i look i will say this i don't think that roger fetter expected the recovery to take this long otherwise he would not have said see you at the start of 2021 even when he had the setback over the summer, when he had to have the second knee surgery, I feel like it's it's a fair assumption to, to say that his recovery has dragged unexpectedly. So that's a little bit concerning, but I mean, he's ready when he's ready. That's all. You wouldn't want him to, 
the best of five is is probably not the best uh, format to come back into anyway. So, you know, there, there's not that much I can add to the news itself other than it wouldn't have done him any good to to come out there like like Andy Murray has at at, at some points and just not been 100%. I, I don't think that that would have done him much good. In a podcast, uh, you said you're glad tennis doesn't play like back in the day, 80s, 90s. Can you explain why? Look, I, I, I like the contrast of styles. I liked when the serve volleyers played the baseliners. I liked the the Wimbledon matches between Pat Rafter and Andre Agassi or Sampras and Agassi. I did enjoy those, but I like rallies. That's it. I'm not going to overcomplicate this answer. I like rallies. I think rallies are entertaining. And as much as I think, you know, there, there were still adjustments, there was still a chess match, spot serving, return position, return strategy, all, all those things were, you know, at play throughout all of tennis history and even in serve volley tennis, I still find the the tactics more interesting when there are rallies. And I think tennis used to be a little bit more just about execution rather than styles and tactics and all that. The chess match. What happened to Gail Monfils? Is he done? I hope not. Uh, I don't know. I... I I don't know what happened to Monfils post-pandemic. He's another example. You you just got to throw 2020 out the out the window for him because uh, clearly he it derailed him. The the pandemic derailed his season in the most dramatic way you could possibly imagine. So let's see how he is in 2021. I I hope he's not done because I'm still first of all I've seen great tennis from him for small portions of time in both 2019 and 2020. I think. His shot selection has gotten so much smarter. I want to see more of Monfils. I'm not done with him. I, I really would like him to uh, to play more and to be healthy and to keep moving and playing. I'm going to skip the second part of this. How has tennis technique and tactics changed over the last five years? Is there any significant development or change to how tennis is played today compared to five years ago? One thing I can think of is that taller athletes move better than before anything else. That's been the major and most noticeable change in tennis is the, the Zverev and Medvedev molds didn't really exist. And I remember when Del Potro was coming up, people were like, oh, wow, six foot six and he moves like this. Holy cow. Now, now we're at a, another level. We're at another peg because as well as Del Potro moved, the man was no defensive wizard. We're looking at Alexander Zverev and Daniil Medvedev as two players who cover the court almost as well as anyone on tour. So it's a totally another level. It's not just Del Potro or Marin Cilic who moved well for his size. Again, Del Potro, Marin Cilic, Kevin Anderson, yeah, they moved fine. But because they moved fine, everyone was like, wow, they, they moved great for their size. A plus, gold star. And while I understand that was the appropriate reaction back then, we've reached a new era now. Now it's not gold star, you move decent at six foot six. It's, well, you move decent, you're no Daniil Medvedev. You're no Alexander Zverev. That's kind of the, the world we live in now. Um... 
Yeah, there's a question about draws, and I, I've answered this one. Tennis Talk asks, should, should one play eight? Should, Plute, should two play seven? And so on. Uh, I, I think it might be better. We we don't want to see the same matches happening over and over again. So I might I think it might be better the way it is. Long one about Nadal. I'm going to skip for time. <laughs> How is Murray playing at the Aussie Open? Didn't they retire him with an emotional video? Yeah, they did. I'm I'm glad he's back. I'm glad he's back. Okay, here's one from Preston. I think as tennis fans, and I think I'll I think I'll answer two more. Uh, I think as tennis fans, we deserve the following situations to occur. If you could, what is your opinion on each theoretical matchup? Novak Roger French Open final, guaranteeing one will complete will complete their second career Grand Slam. Man, that would be glorious. Roger Rafa match in New York, finally after having four chances of it occurring. 4015, never forget a reference to 2011 when Djokovic and Federer were in the semifinals and Federer had two match points to beat Nadal in the finals and Novak hit his cross-court forehand return. Novak Roger, gold medal matchup in the Olympics. Hmm. Look, I got to say, all due respect to the Olympics, but I would be most excited to see... Um, I want to see Roger and Rafa play at the U.S. Open. <laughs> I'd like to see a full Arthur Ashe. The New York fans deserve to see this once. And uh, that's my pick. I maybe Again, maybe I'm biased. I have a soft spot for the U.S. Open. But uh, that's what I would want to see. My opinion on each theoretical matchup. Here's my opinion. I think that right now, Federer might have a better chance at beating Novak best of five on clay than hardcourt. It's less so about what Roger likes, but more so about what Novak likes. And I I actually, I really liked what I saw out of Roger on clay in 2019. I thought it was, uh, I thought it was pretty good stuff from him. Roger Rafa in New York, US Open. I just want to see Roger and Rafa on a hardcourt because we haven't really seen it since the stretch from 2017, 2018, right? So that's been a while. I, I just want to see that and what that looks like. I don't know what that's going to look like. It, it's been too long to be to be completely honest with you. Who knows? Last time we checked, Roger was really doing things that gave Rafa a lot of problems with taking the backhand early and hitting it flat cross court and punishing the wide serve with the backhand return. So that's last time we saw. All right, last one. We will go to Ravi with eight likes on this one. Uh, so certainly need to uh, answer this one and uh, I'll end here. Whoops. Sorry about that. I clicked on the wrong thing. First one. What is more likely Gil? Oh, okay. It's a four. Oh no, no, no. This is just the first one. Nadal winning Australia slash Wimbledon or Novak winning the French. Certainly more likely that Nadal wins Australia or Wimbledon because I don't have Novak as the number two at the French. I, I will repeat. I will reiterate. I think team is more likely to win the French if Nadal doesn't. And I think you need to watch out for Stefano Tsitsipas at the French Open. And you've heard it here first. But if he clicks mentally, his game is going to be a problem on the clay. Again, mark my words. Watch out for Stefanos um, at the French. He's really got the game to be a big problem there. 
On the other hand, Nadal, Wimbledon, maybe depending on how Roger Federer looks, might be the number two easily. So Nadal more likely. Number two, Novak beating Nadal on clay or Nadal beating Novak on hard or gl- or grass, both including best of three and best of five. Well, I mean, we, man, we we just we just saw Nadal and Novak on clay, and while Novak probably was not at his tippy top, um, I would have to say ah, this is hard. Best of five, Nadal on uh, on hard. Best of three. Maybe maybe best of three, Novak against uh, Nadal on clay. It's a tough one. Why do you think Nadal not winning ATP finals? Why do you think that's not a big deal, that Nadal has not won an ATP finals? Look, here's a point I want to make about this. It's not that I think it's not a big deal. I just think it's... I just don't think it's like some kind of um, major... Goat debate decider that people would like it to be. I think that that's all, and I, I'm consistent here with all of these little factoids. My my take is you can always twist, you can always search, you can always dig, you can always find the one thing with all three of them where they come up short. It's getting a little harder with Novak, to be honest, but he's he's third place in the in the most important one. So there it is for Novak, but. Uh, let me make this point on Nadal having zero ATP finals. It is not surprising, folks, that the titles are, in Nadal's case, are very lopsided. A lot of French Open titles, zero ATP finals titles, where with Nadal and, uh, excuse me, with Federer and Djokovic, it's a little bit tighter, a little bit more spread out. You know, you have, both of them have been good at Wimbledon and good at the U.S. Open. They they each had their runs there and uh, Australian ATP Finals. Because when you think about it, you have two guys in the big three who are pretty close to each other in terms of what their preferences are for conditions. Federer and, and Djokovic are similar. Nadal is the odd man out. So imagine if we erased... Novak Djokovic from existence, and we made David Ferrer three inches taller, and we gave him a serve 130 miles per hour, and we gave him 5% more power off the ground. We kept his movement. We kept his consistency. Now now Ferrer is a big problem on clay for Nadal, right? Let's just say that. Now Ferrer is a big problem, and he prefers clay. What would Federer's numbers look like now? He would be less likely... If we replace Djokovic with uh, Ferrer Plus, he would be less likely to have that one French Open title. Maybe maybe Ferrer would have won it that year, 2009. He would be more likely to have more than his seven Wimbledons, right? All the numbers would become more lopsided. The way the big three are constructed right now, you have one versus two. So one of the reasons why Nadal has a zero there is because all in all, like he has to compete with two players who are better than him on indoor hard. They're better. Two though, instead of one. And if there were, let's say two Nadals, for example, well then 
or, or if there was another player who was more similar to Nadal, well, yeah, he'd have less French Opens and he would be more likely to have that ATP Finals title. So I, I do think that the fact that Nadal's surface results are lopsided, it makes sense when you think about it. It makes sense, right? It's not, and again, this is not an argument in defense of Nadal. This is not pro-Nadal. This is just reality. This is how it is. This is how the big three is constructed. That is all. Um, last one here. Of the three, who do you think is the gutsiest and why? It's it's a tough one. I mean, I would say Nadal is the gutsiest. Djokovic is less likely to succumb to nerves. But I think Nadal is the gutsiest. I think he, he works harder, point in and point out. I think he has... Um, a little bit more, more f um, consistent fight in him. I just I've never seen, you know. So it's it's not it's not a hot take, but I, I do find that to be the case. All right, that is it. We've gone over an hour. Um, this was a lot of fun for a good off season mailbag. Appreciate you guys. I got to every single comment. By the way. no, that's not true. I got to almost every single comment. So um, glad you guys were able to participate. Always enjoy this. Um, and I'll do it again soon. Hope you enjoyed. Don't forget to subscribe. I'll see you next time.